This week I'm joined by LBC's Ian Dale. We talk about Ian's life, his journey to being a Conservative parliamentary candidate and beyond as one of the country's most respected political pundits. I really enjoyed putting Ian in the hot seat to answer the questions rather than being grilled on his show and I hope you enjoy it. Now I'm really excited this week to be joined by LBC's Ian Dale. Many of you will know Ian, he's one of Britain's foremost political commentators. He's an author, a, a pundit, a podcaster. I'm loving his uh, PM podcasts at the moment. He's a publisher. In fact, pretty much whatever it is in political commentary and politics, Ian's done it. And this week I'm going to interview Ian on 30 key questions and he in turn is also going to get a chance to interview me on his All Talk podcast in a couple of weeks which I'm looking forward to. So in a sense it's a double header here but I've got Ian in the hot seat for 30 questions Um, so Ian thanks very much for joining me. (laughs) I'm looking forward to, to, to asking you and running getting through as many of these questions as I can. Well, from your introduction, it seems as though I only do things that begin with a P. (laughs) Make of that what you will. Well, here's something you don't do in a way. So for those of you who don't know, Ian's been working with me on our How to Level Up seminars. And so all of that work that I've been doing on social mobility and levelling up, Ian has really helped us bring that together through a series of seminars that are holding. And, And Ian has the challenging job of basically throwing questions at our expert panel um, exactly in the same way that's that's made him famous. Um, but I think, Ian, it's going to be maybe a bit of a challenge for me to be the person who's asking the questions as a change. Well, it's quite nice to be on the other side. <laughs> you say that now. But let's, <laughs> let's Go on get then, going. hit me. <laughs> so question number one, Ian. On a scale of one to ten, how excited are you about life right now? Um, I probably about seven or eight because we're recording this um, at sort of the end of February and I've spent the last uh, two months cooped up at home because I'm in a shielding group so I've been broadcasting my radio show from my bedroom uh, which nobody seems to have noticed but anyway Um, but I go back into the studio on the 1st of March I've had my vaccine and that's three weeks after the date that I had the vaccine Um, I'm going to be broadcasting very solitarily in our new Westminster studio so I don't have to mix with a lot of other people I'm going to drive into London and it, it sort of starts the beginning of a return to normality I think because even though the first lockdown, I, I didn't find that difficult at all. I know a lot of people did, but I didn't quite enjoyed it. This one, I kind of want it to end. I, I want to get back to normal. I want to be able to travel, um, uh, well, at least travel within this country, which even that you can't do at the moment. So, yeah, I'm quite excited about the next few months. I think you're right. This last lockdown just feels a lot just heavy duty lifting compared to the first one. I, I think there was a level of fatigue that got him but it's it's good to hear that you'll be back in the studio and I guess most people will probably know you now as this super confident tv radio presenter but tell us a little bit about when you've been more nervous about what you've been doing you know there's often often a veneer I guess for a lot of people but tell us about when you've been most nervous I suffer hugely, believe it or not, from imposter syndrome, which people think, well, how how can you, and I'm also quite a shy person, 
um, mm -hmm. in many ways, which people think, well, how can that be? You're, you're on the radio for three hours every night. You do all these TV programs. Um, you must be supremely confident in what you're doing. Now, I have no journalistic training. I have no broadcasting training. And when I started at LBC, I always thought I could do it. But there was a little bit of a doubt in my mind, I suppose, that I was mm. going to be good enough. But I suffer much more from that with my writing. Um, I, whenever I press send, when I, when I send an article off to the Telegraph or the Standard or whoever, I always think it's going to come back with them saying, no, no, this is rubbish, start again. Now, it's never happened. So I suppose I ought to think, well, yes, I can do this. But you know that feeling when you, you read a, co a column by somebody else, and you think, oh, I wish I could write like that. <laughs> And I can't exactly. imagine anybody's ever felt that reading one of my columns. But if you read Michael Gove, for example, or Danny Finkelstein, people like that, they have they are naturally talented writers. And I've worked out that my best columns are the ones that I bash off in about 20 minutes. If I spend mm. hours and hours, uh, honestly, uh, I just by the time I have finished, I just think this is, this is awful. Um, so those are the doubts that I have, I suppose. Completely share that actually you know I, I write columns and um, I, I could never tell you whether they're good or not in a no. sense um, by the time I've finished them but I do enjoy it actually and I guess what seems to come across you know when when I'm either watching you on tv or listening to you present your show you I mean you really seem to enjoy it but you know I always said education secretary is my dream job are you doing your dream job now Ian or, or, or is there something else you've got in mind that would be your dream job um, I am doing my dream job um, and, and a lot of people when you work for a commercial station you constantly get asked oh well of course you'd really rather work for the BBC wouldn't you <laughs> and I say well no because I couldn't do what I do on the BBC I do three hours with no script whatsoever um, I'm the editor of my own program so essentially I decide what subjects we're going to do with my producers admittedly but in the end it's my decision um, I, we don't very often disagree on anything to be, to be honest and I get to interview famous people. I get to talk to people who aren't famous every night to really test the mood of the nation. And I absolutely love it. And I love doing breaking news stories. That's when the adrenaline really flows. Um, back in January, when the Capitol Hill riots happened, um, I covered that live from my bedroom. Well, that's mm -hmm. a broadcasting challenge, isn't it? If you think about it, I haven't got all of the studio mm -hmm. uh, information to go with. I have Twitter to look at. I have the Sky News screen to look at. And I have, my, have to have my wits about me. Now, that there is no better adrenaline flow than covering a, a, a live breaking news story. So that... I feel I have my dream job and I don't think I could do what I do anywhere else. So I'm really grateful to LBC that I mean, they, they stuck with me for 11 years so far. So <laughs> we'll see how much longer they have patience with me. Um, yeah, my, I think we, we all remember that that time when um, the storming of yeah. the capital happened. And I think none of us could quite believe our, our eyes. But in a sense, we were all glued to whatever media we were watching in and you know, there was some fantastic broadcasting that day, but I'm going to guess that virtually every other broadcaster had a, an awful lot more resources at their disposal than you did. Well, they might have done, but that's where we can be really nimble. I remember when um, the Woolwich terrorist murder happened in May 2013. I'd only been presenting the Drive Time programme for a few months by then. And um, I won't go into all the detail because I've talked about it elsewhere. But that the BBC held an inquiry afterwards to say, why was their coverage so much worse than ours? Now, it did help that 
um, I happened to have a Twitter follower who was an eyewitness. He was like three yards away from it when it happened. Mm -hmm. And he phoned in just before we went on air. And I interviewed him about it. And um, I mean, the interview won a, won a Silver Sony um, that, that year, which I always feel slightly awkward about winning an interview for <laughs> interviewing somebody who had been at mm. the scene of a terrorist murder. Um, but we, I, I remember that at that point, my program was four hours long. And I remember coming off air. That was the first time when I thought, you know what, you can do this. You've done it really uh, well. And it was a real, it was something that I don't think any, any other broadcaster could have bettered we we had so many people um who had got something to do with it and of course when you when you're covering a terror incident or for example when the malaysian airliner was brought down over ukraine that's the only thing you know the only information you have to go on and yet you've got to you go into rolling news mode um because that that's a decision that the the management will take right you cover this and nothing else mm -hmm. and as a presenter that is a real challenge because you've got to keep the audience interested, but you haven't got anything to tell them, really. You can't speculate too much because it could be, particularly when you're covering a terrorist case, I mean, people automatically assume that it, it's an Islam, Islamist terror murder, usually, but sometimes it isn't, you know, and sometimes it isn't even a terror incident. Remember that Oxford Circus incident um, yes. a couple of years ago? Well, I there was just a sixth sense that told me that this was not what it seemed. So I was very, very reluctant to go into rolling news on it. And in the end, I made a decision to come away from it because I just thought this is not what everybody else is saying that it is. Luckily, I was right. So mm -hmm. that gives you such um, when you've done it well, it gives you such a feeling of accomplishment and you, you know that you've done it in a responsible way you haven't hyped it up um and it, it's you kind of i mean it's all an awful thing to say when you, you you admit that you really enjoy covering terrorist incidents i mean it shouldn't maybe enjoy is the wrong word but it's what you want to be on air to cover and, and it, you, it you, was important and it mattered to it it mattered to do it well and you did it well and yeah. i guess that's where if you like the the satisfaction of having done a job brilliantly at a time it really mattered to a wider public came from well and also when we were doing all of the brexit coverage in parliament that i mean all of the breaking news story came in my program because i got moved off drive in 20 when was it 2017 or 28 2017 i think when they brought in eddie mayer now i could have flounced off and had a hissy fit um, at that point because i trebled the audience and i'm thinking well i'm not sure what else they could have expected me to do but <laughs> you either decide to be a team player or not. And if and I said to my boss, you know what, if I'd had the chance to bring Eddie Mayer in, I'd have done it too. And um, so I went back to doing the evening show and I'd forgotten what a brilliant time slot that is mm. because you haven't got all of the pressures of a drive time show where it's pacey, pacey, pacey. You can spend an hour interviewing somebody if you want. And and I've really, it, it, it sort of gave me a new lease of life in a way. And of course, I didn't know that all of the Brexit debates would go on as they were. And so we were broadcasting <laughs> live, from, live from College Green. They were only it, just getting going by yeah, drive time generally, weren't yeah, they? Exactly. And it was really exciting. So that, I would say I have my dream job. My other dream job would have been one that you've had, Secretary of State oh. for Transport. Mm. I mean, if, if I got into Parliament, that would have been the job that I would have really been trying to get because as you well know there are some cabinet jobs where you can talk a lot but you can't actually change a lot I, i'd yeah. say D dcms is probably something i'd quite enjoy but what can you actually change as culture secretary whereas at transport every decision you make 
or most decisions you make will have an impact on somebody uh, for, for good or ill. And I, I, I was the transport lobbyist for a time in the 1990s. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an area that I know a little bit about. Um, and I would, I would love to have done that. Well, I can tell you doing it during the Olympics, you know, and, and that whole run up was one of the most amazing things, you know, to have, have been part of. Um, I was massively proud of the DFT team and, you know, obviously got to work with um, Peter Hendy and of course his boss, one mayor then <laughs> Boris Johnson. I have to say, I so... was ne never, never a great fan of Peter Hendy. My, my first bit of advice to Boris when he took over as mayor was to get rid of him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> You're a hard man, Ian Dale. <laughs> well, we, I'm afraid I've got lots of questions here, so we're going to move on yeah, now. Go on. Sorry, but I'm talking too much. Lots of your podcast listeners um, for, the men, for the many podcasts will know that you're one of life's very hard workers. I think it's because you're just so into what you're doing. But tell us, tell us in, in terms of your getting to bed, you have to eventually go to sleep, um, even if you're a workaholic. So tell us about your going to bed ritual, Ian. How do you finally <laughs> switch down, switch off? Oh my goodness. Um, that's such a good question. Um, I, my partner is, so, is a bit of a night owl. And he doesn't go to bed until four or five o'clock in the morning. Oh God! Um, this is probably more information <laughs> that you or your listeners need in this podcast. But ever since we, well, more or less since we met, we've always had separate rooms because I can't stand sleeping in the same bed as anyone else, and actually he doesn't <laughs> particularly like it either, particularly if it's me. So, <laughs> um, so I tend to go to bed probably in funny, funny enough in lockdown. It's been a little bit earlier. The way I switch off when my program finishes at ten. And at the moment, I just walk next door and have something to eat and then go into the sitting room. And then we have a ritual which we've developed. We've we've decided that the best way to switch off of an evening is to find a series on Netflix, which isn't challenging in any way at all. So we spend three quarters of an hour watching something like Virgin River or Chesapeake Shores, which is... Or Schitt's Creek. That's another good well, one you see, I, I throw in there. I can't get into that. I I, keep, I've, I have persevered with it and I haven't given I really it up like yet. It. But I don't... It's, it isn't quite what everybody else seems to think it is, I don't think, anyway. But Chesapeake Shores, nothing really happens. There's a lot of some nice characters. It's beautiful scenery. And um, that's that's how I sort of switch off. And then I immediately yeah. go to bed. Now, um, I always put my laptop on my pillow and look at if I've had any emails sort of over the last hour, I'll look at them, look at Twitter. Um, I shut the laptop and then I read for about four pages before I fall asleep. So I'm a very, very slow reader at the moment. Um, which is a bit of a pain because I've had to read some very long books recently. Um, the Chips Channon Diaries, a thousand pages. I interviewed Simon Heffer about it on Monday. And then also Suzanne Hayward's book about Jeremy Hayward, that's about 500. So I've had to speed read um, quite a lot. But um, I, I've kind of lost the habit of reading for enjoyment because generally I'm reading because I need to read a book because uh, I'm going to interview the person or I mean often I read it I interview somebody without having read the book which is a terrible admission but I kind of justify it by saying well I'm on the same level as the, the listener then because they won't have read it either generally um, so I'm asking the questions that they would because I can't possibly read every single book that I probably ought to. Fair enough and is there a time of day for you that's your favourite you know the time when you're like actually this is when I feel it all comes together for me and I don't know what my favourite time of day would be, but it'd be good to good to get a sense of yours. 
Um, I quite like, I only do my show four days a week um, at my, my choice. I used to do five, but when I moved back into the evenings, I thought, you know, I really do need to have a bit more time to myself. And then, of course, I started doing the Good Morning Britain early slot on a Friday with Jackie Smith. So I get up very early and I quite like the couple of hours after that finishes where the house is completely silent. Um, John is still asleep. And sometimes I go back to sleep and other, other times I'll just sort of I, I might go back to bed, but I don't go back to sleep. I might read or I might sort of fiddle on my laptop or whatever. I quite like Friday mornings. Mm -hmm. I think I've nearly answered my own question as well. I think my, mine is probably quite early, 7.30, maybe up on Wimbledon Common with the dog. And it's absolutely beautiful. And daylight today you yeah. know, is beautiful this time of year. Um, right, we're going to move on. Um, now, we have something in common um, for people involved in politics and the political sphere, which is, unlike so many others, we didn't go to Oxbridge and we didn't do PPE. <laughs> Um, so has it ever made you feel a little bit like an outsider, Ian, do you think, not being part of well, the Oxbridge circuit? Again, you've done your research on me, haven't you? I um, have. I think that you and I have something in common here, in that I went to a comprehensive school, um, I went to the University of East Anglia, and even in my 30s and 40s, there was still something that made me feel slightly inferior to people who had been to public school in Oxbridge. And I can remember when being in a group, I think it was George Osborne, David Cameron, Nick Bowles and Ed Vasey. And I kind of felt a bit like a fish out of water in mm -hmm. that I would be chatting away to them, but there was, I can't really describe it, but there was, there was some sort of barrier there. And I think if you've been to public school and, Oxbridge you have an inner confidence which the likes of us don't necessarily have automatically I think there's something that they do at public school that just gives people this outward air of slight superiority and I would say it was only when I got to about 50 that that disappeared and it's not there anymore and I if I'm talking to people from that background now I don't feel inferior I, I, I feel I can hold my own with with anybody and I think it's partly funny enough doing the radio show that has helped me do that because I literally have to talk about things that I know nothing about have very little interest in sometimes I have to talk authoritatively about them um, and I'll give you an example of how that happens when I used to do any questions in particular I mean I've done a couple of question times but any questions I would do a lot of preparation I would have little cue cards that I would write for myself on the subjects I thought might come up um, but after each one, I thought, you know, you didn't really need to do that. And now I don't. I just go in and do it. And I don't do an awful lot of preparation because I've worked out that I can talk about anything um, or more or less anything and not make a fool of myself. And I, I didn't have that confidence before. Um, so, yeah, that, that it goes back to the imposter syndrome, I suppose. I remember the first day I ever worked in the House of Commons in 1985, four, yeah, 1984. I was walking through Central Lobby and I saw former Prime Minister Jim Callaghan and former President Ford walking together uh, along wow. the corridor. And I did think to myself, what's a boy from Essex doing in a place like this? And that feeling has never quite gone away. Maybe that's, I think, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting discussion, probably for another time, but maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe this sense of almost 
having a different perspective on life rather than just being molded um, in some respects isn't bad. It's almost making sure it doesn't end up being a barrier to contributing that fresh perspective. And I can relate to everything you've just said. I think that sometimes, you know, when I was sat in cabinet, I almost could have a sense of a, a sort of different set of rules almost, mm. or some rules that I wasn't quite sure what they were. Yeah. Um, and generally I could almost sense or detect them through having just rubbed up against them, you know, and it might be that I'd been quite direct, you know, I'm from Yorkshire, we call a spade a spade. Um, you know, we, we put problems on the table, you know, I, I didn't get to where I got to without tackling problems and being, you know, being honest about them and then sorting them out. And I think I felt sometimes it was almost just a different style um and maybe different styles that we'd had to to kind of get on in our different spheres but actually they they occasionally came into conflict yeah i think this is actually part of your leveling up agenda program in that there are so many people who come from and look you and i didn't come from poor backgrounds so i mean there's no point in us getting our collective onions out of our pocket um we we both i think had probably very good starts in life but um, your background can determine your outcome uh, and the education system in particular, I think, has got to try and deal with that in some way. I've got no magic solutions, but um, somehow kids from working class backgrounds and poorer backgrounds need to be able to get that inner confidence that those who've come from much more privileged backgrounds seem to automatically have. Yeah, and I think it's a sense of expectation and I think from my perspective, I mean, I, I definitely describe my background, you know, as working class. That's definitely what we were. You know, my dad spent time unemployed um, when he lost his job in the steel industry in the 80s. But I definitely think there's a sense of different expectations. And I remember when I told someone in my quite close family, not immediate, quite close family, that I was running for parliament. This is this is when I was fighting a, a sort of unwinnable seat, as they call them in Ealing Acton Shepherds Bush. And they said, are you sure you're up to it? And I, I remember saying, well, why shouldn't I be there? Loads of people run mm. for parliament, yeah. you know, um, why not? But it was, it was just a very different, I think, attitude on almost expectations about someone from my background and, and what they might expect to get chance to do. Um, so it, it is an interesting discussion and it absolutely is part of, you know, the levelling up agenda and, and people changing their expectations around, you know, what they can do and that being part of the fix. Now I'm going, I'm going to change the discussion again, Ian, I'm afraid we're, we're, we're going to move on again. Um, different question now. Tell us the biggest surprise you've had. Oh my goodness, the biggest surprise I've had. Um, I'm not sure it's a massive surprise, but I, I remember on my 50th birthday, we, we'd hired some big country house on the North Norfolk coast and um, for about 10 days. And um, we, it basically became a 10 day house party. There were some people that just came <laughs> to stay most of the time and others just turned up on the Saturday night for the party. And um, my partner uh, uh, actually... I'm not sure it was, it did cover my birthday. But anyway, on the Saturday, I got led out um, to the front of the house and there was a um, brand new Fiat 500. And it was wow. quite, quite, kind of quite a, um, it was 
slightly weird color. It was sort of bronzy brown color. <coughs> and um, that was quite a big surprise. Um, it was even more of a surprise when I tried to sit in the driver's seat and wouldn't fit. Because <laughs> it was one of those, the, the seats, you know. The so one was a good surprise. The second was yeah, a bad surprise. Yeah, it, it was a bad surprise because the back of the, when you sit on the seat, where your bottom goes, the, the back of it, it, it didn't go down like in most cars. There, there wasn't the option to change the setting. <laughs> um, so my, my head was just sort of bouncing off the roof the whole time. So I'm afraid, although it was a lovely present, it didn't last long. <laughs> I was going to say this slightly leads me into my next question, but of course it doesn't. Uh, but the next question is, what three dead people would you like to make dinner for? Obviously not your partner, because it was a nice, <laughs> nice attempt me, at a surprise, even if, if it didn't if quite If I was up. making dinner, he wouldn't be there. Um, I would choose Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. because I think he had the most interesting life, uh, a very complex character. And I've read all of his books. And for anybody interested in politics, um, can I recommend that you read his book in the arena? It's all about what motivates mm -hmm. people to get into politics. And, uh, and he basically says you have to be in the arena to make a difference. And I, I remember when I read that, that had a really sort of profound effect on me. Um, so he would be one. Um, who else? Giles Brandreth would be one of them, because if the conversation ever sagged, he would immediately be able to step in and entertain us all. Um, he is one of my uh, heroes in many ways. Um, he got me into radio to an extent, even though I'd always wanted to be a radio presenter. He, in about 1999, he used to ask me on his LBC Sunday Afternoon Arts and Culture show, and um, that was the first show where I ever did any radio presentation because he used to have a feature called Stairway to Heaven. And it was a bit like Desert Island Discs. It was all about the things that you'd miss if you died. <laughs> and, I'm sure it was very uplifting. And I just had the idea of turning the tables on him. And so I said, look, why don't I do this one week? I'll, I'll interview you. So I, I did that. And I found the recording of a couple of years ago. I put it on my SoundCloud. And it, I think it, I actually used it on one of the All Talk podcasts. Um, and it's really funny listening to yourself 20 years before. Uh, and uh, so... And I just think he is one of life's entertainers. And, he's and did you did you do that interview in and think to yourself later on? Oh, I quite enjoyed that. I think it was pretty good. Well, did you I, have a sense it might be the beginning of something bigger? I was hoping, but it was it was around the same time, or not long after that, that I started uh, deputising for Andrew Pierce on Sunday Service on Five Live, which was a Sunday mm -hmm. morning program that sort of politics. There's quite a lot of humour in it as well. It's Feed Lover, Charlie Wheel, and Andrew Pierce. And when the producer, Joe Phillips, asked me to deputise for Andrew, Phillips, Andrew Pierce, I thought all my Christmases had come at once. And I did about 20 of those. And there was one programme where Fee wasn't there, but her replacement didn't show up. She'd overslept. And I said to Joe, the producer, I said, let me do it. Let me be the main presenter. And she was up for it, but she went to see Steve Kite, who was uh, the deputy controller of Five Live at the time. And, and he said, that's no, too much of a risk. We'll get Sheila Fogarty to carry on from breakfast. And it was really funny that yesterday I got an email from Steve Kite because I told this story that he'd heard <laughs> on an interview I did with Jane Garvey on my podcast. And he said, you know what? I, we really should have let you do that. So I was quite pleased with that. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, it's sort of... My third one, before we before I oh, forget yes, the third one, um, I think it would be Dame Judi Dench. 
because again, I think she's had such a fascinating life and I haven't ever seen her in a film or a television programme where I thought, oh, that, that wasn't a very good performance. Everything she's done has been magnificent. And I, my sister met her on holiday in the Caribbean once and just said she was the most amazing person to talk to. Exactly how she seems when you see her being interviewed. I mean, that she, she is who she is. And I, I quite like that. There are so many people that you come across who privately are very different from their public persona, but she's not one of them. Brilliant. Now, continuing on the, uh, the TV theme. So probably from my earlier Shit's Creek reference, you might have detected I am, I am finally brackets on Netflix. And, you know, for all of those other people who've had time in their social lives to watch TV in the past, unlike me whilst I was in cabinet, um, I'm nearly towards the end of the fall now with Gillian Anderson. And I have to say, it's a bit odd because I've also been watching The Crown and I've got up to the Thatcher years and, and it, <laughs> it all feels possibly a little bit heavy on the Gillian Anderson front. But nevertheless, what's your TV obsession of the moment Ian. Right well when you finish those I'm going to recommend something to you which is not on Netflix it's on Amazon Prime have you got that? I have got that too yes. Outlander. (laughs) Okay. Have you heard of that? No tell me all about it though. Well it's how do I explain Outlander it's it's basically about time travel but don't let that put you off it's it starts with a married couple at the end of the second world war trying to rekindle their relationship by going on a sort of second honeymoon to Inverness and the wife goes for a walk one day and she finds this sort of mini stone henge in the hills outside Inverness and there's this sort of vibrating sound that she hears and she puts her hand on one of the stones and she gets transported back to 1743, as you do. And the the whole series is based on the premise that uh, she has to build a new life in 1743. Now she does come back to um, modern days. I mean, she goes back to 1968, believe it or not. And there's a bit of sort of toing and froing, but her main life is back in 1743 in the Scottish Highlands. And it's all around the time of the Battle of Culloden. And she gets married to Jamie Fraser, who's a sort of clansman, very, very good looking, played by Sam Huygen. And um, it is just the most brilliant series. They recreate the Battle of Culloden. If, if you've ever seen Band of Brothers, that's mm-hmm. the only series where I've ever thought that they, they really recreate a battle and you feel as if you're almost in the middle of it. And they do this with the Battle of Culloden. So what you've got is entertainment it teaches you a hell of a lot about Scottish history which I I didn't really know an awful lot about Um, and I am partly Scottish so I feel slightly ashamed of that there's a lot of sex a lot of perverted sex there's a lot of violence and it's a brilliant storyline and it's it's over five series so far they've just started filming the sixth and it's the best thing I've seen on screen for 10 years it is just brilliant and then the second series they move it to pre-revolutionary France then they go to the to the West Indies for the third series, and the fourth and the fifth are in pre-revolutionary America. But it's the same characters who miraculously seem to appear um, all all the time, and it very is clever. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Very very clever. Well, I'm I'm going to look forward to it now. That I've got a few quick fire questions, if I may. Um, so first one is stupidest thing you've ever done in your life. Um, the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life was uh, trying to move a protester out of camera on Brighton Beach in 2013 and got um, charged with 
uh, assault and got police <laughs> caution for it. And it's the, it's the thing that if the left ever want to have a go at me on Twitter, if I've, if I've done something that um, is good or been successful, that's the way they attack me. They just post a video of it. Um, I mean, they, they've edited it to make it look far worse than it actually was. Because um, I wasn't actually violent at all. I just tried to pull him back by his rucksack. And he then swung around and tried to hit me. We both then toppled over and rolled around <laughs> on the ground a bit. And of course, because it was it was doing an interview with Damien McBride, I was publishing his memoirs. Um, and there were lots of cameras there. So of course they caught it all. And it was- You're slightly uh, conjuring up a bit of a, a John Prescott moment. Well, it, it was a bit like that, but he was violent. <laughs> I was not, but there we are. <laughs> okay, best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, the best piece of advice I've ever received, well, the one that I can immediately think of was from Louise Burt, who now runs BBC Radio Essex. She was a deputy managing editor of LBC at the time. This is back in... 2012 I was presenting the Sunday morning show and um, I I have quite a it can be a quite a soporific voice and she, they, they kept saying particularly when I moved to drive you've got to add pace and <laughs> and you can't I mean you know what it's like you you get all this advice from people about what you should do and you're thinking well you hired me with this voice I can't change my <laughs> voice and she would at the start of every show at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning to try and get me to be a bit more pacey and lively, she would scream into the microphone behind the glass, big bollocks! <laughs> and that you just used to make me laugh. And so off I'd go and say, welcome to LBC, I'm Ian Dale! <laughs> and off it would go. Brilliant. Okay, by contrast, worst piece of advice you've received? Now, I have never named this person, but I will for you, Justine. Um, Therese Coffey gave mm -hmm. me the worst piece of advice I've ever had. And without it, um, I might have got into Parliament. Um, for those who don't know, I stood for Parliament in 2005, but had a disastrous result in North Norfolk. And just one little anecdote for that, because it involves you, um, that the, the, the morning, the day after in the Eastern Daily Press, there was a picture of me with a portable television and this other candidate who was dressed as a clown <laughs> with his arm around me, <laughs> while I was looking at this television and the headline was something along the lines of um, clown candidate consoles loser Ian Dale something like that and the truth of it was I was looking at the television watching you being elected in Putney <laughs> and thinking that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> with the clown as well <laughs> exactly um the so no, Therese Coffey, I then tried to, for the, in the 2010 election to get a seat, but I'd taken two years out um, of selections because I was starting a new business. And I thought, well, that doesn't really, I can't really do both. So I got back into it very late and I nearly got Bracknell. Um, I lost out to Philip Lee and Rory Stewart came second, I came third. Um, and then the last one I applied for was East Surrey, which Sam uh, Gmar got. And the week before I, I ran into Therese Coffey and she said, well, I hope you've prepared a really good speech because they want a future cabinet minister. So you've really got to pull the stops out. And I never used to write speeches. I would just go in and do it. Oh. And I thought, mm, maybe I better. So I wrote a speech and I thought I'd memorized it, but I have a terrible memory. I can't learn lines and I should have known that it was not the right thing to do. That's and another I, thing we've got in common then. Well, and I remember it going wrong after the first paragraph. I just 
went to pieces. It was a terrible speech. So I was in the final, but I came six out of six, and deservedly so. So um, I, I always blame Therese Coffee for that. But she she is a good friend, and that, but um, that that was a bit of advice I should have ignored. Mm, interesting. Now you've published a couple of books recently. Um, Why can't we all get along? And the Prime Minister. I am listening to the podcasts that you. In fact, there's a lot to go through. Obviously. 55 um but they're absolutely brilliant but apart from those what's a book that you think everyone should read um animal farm is probably if i had to just recommend one i would say animal farm because that politicized me in a way back in my early school days and when That's i was interesting when I, what, what was i 13 or 14 i suppose when i read it and i instantly got what it was all about um I won't say it instantly turned me into a conservative but it, it really I think the discussions that we had in the classroom about it um I can remember were I mean quite quite deep for that that kind of age group um so I think yeah that that's the one I would pick interesting well you've just talked about your school years and we're probably not far off the same age if you could be any age what do you think you'd be if you could well, pick in my mind, I'm still between 18 and 25. <laughs> um, uh, I d I, I'm 58, um, so I think I'm quite a way ahead of you. But I, I have never worried about age until now, and I dread being 60. I didn't mind being 50. I didn't mind being 40. 27 was the age when I thought that's when you stop being young. I don't know why 27, <laughs> but that was always sort of the, the age that I thought of. Look, throughout most of my life, I, I can't think of a period in my life where I've really had a bad time. Everything I've done, um, I've had a very varied life in terms of the jobs that I've done, uh, where I've lived, um, where I've travelled. I, I find this a really difficult one. I think probably, probably the early to mid 1980s when I was at university and then spent two mm -hmm. years working in parliament and parliament in the early mid 1980s was a very very different place to what it is now um I, yeah I'd, I'd probably pick 80 80 to 85 and I spent two of those years living in Germany as well mm. and then, and then as, as you said before went on to ultimately be a parliamentary candidate um if you had to pick a worst moment as a candidate what would that be well, the, the count. <laughs> <laughs> that count um, and that but, clown. But I mean, there, there was, I knew I was going to lose. I, I remember in February 2005, spending an afternoon canvassing in uh, a village called Overstrand next to Cromer on the North Norfolk coast. Big houses should have been rock solid Tory territory. But Norman Lamb, who was the Liberal Democrat MP, he had really carved a good relation, good reputation for himself, deservedly so, because he was mm. a good constituency MP. Mm -hmm. And for a Liberal Democrat, he was a bit sort of orange booky. He was a bit Eurosceptic, very free market. Um, and I had run a very high profile campaign against him. And he's told me since that he thought he might lose because uh, he, I'd really scared him, I think, because it was so high profile. Um, but I knew after that afternoon when I would go knock on a door and countless people said, yeah, well, we, we are really conservatives and we really like you. But Norman's such a good MP and he's such a nice man. <laughs> and I went back to our house and I just said to John, that's it. It's over. 
it's so not had, happening. No, I had three months of knowing that, which, as you know, you have to keep your troops mo motivated. And it was a very difficult three months. I didn't realise I was going to lose quite as badly as I did, but I knew I was going to lose. Um, but even on the night, even though you know the, what that you are going to lose, you, you can't show it too much because you, the, the party workers still want to believe. But I, my main thing then was to make sure that I got through my concession speech without bursting into tears because I, I can be quite lachrymose <laughs> at times. Um, and I did do it. And in fact, I made a speech I was really proud of. I wish I'd kept it. I mean, I, I didn't mm -hmm. have it sort of things written on a cue card, which I must have got somewhere. I don't know where. And um, what nearly set me off was just as I finished, Norman put his arm around me. Oh, and that really nearly set me off and and then the next morning it was the county council count and I thought well I am going to go back I don't need to but I'm going Very to put good. in an well appearance done. and I remember my sister phoned me just as I walked through the door and I just said I can't talk to you because I know I'll break down <laughs> it's going to set me off oh my god uh, and actually as I walked through the door all all, all I would say all but everybody sort of got up or stopped what they were doing and gave me a clap which um, even the Liberal Democrats which actually meant quite a lot so I would say obviously the count was bad I, I mean you get to do bizarre things as a candidate I remember refereeing a, a wrestling match that was a pretty bizarre uh, experience <laughs> and then on on uh, Boxing Day having to go into the North Sea um, of Cromer Beach because that was a, a tradition there and um sort of dressing very inappropriately <laughs> so I, re I remember um as an mp i always loved going to the st michael's school fate and um they used to get me judging the dog competition which i really enjoyed but one year i went and they'd got all these categories and one of them was most like owner and i just thought <laughs> where'd you go with that i mean <laughs> i spent most of the time as these dogs paraded around desperately trying oh, to think of a fantastic. way out and um, and i did so i alighted on a beautiful chocolate labrador that a man had brought and um and said it had a wonderful physique and it <laughs> very well built and muscly and you know a fine specimen and uh, the, and the, the irony was of course there was a dog that was completely like its owner um and so you could see everyone thinking it's that one over there with the frizzy hair <laughs> i thought i am not going to fall into that trip trap i thought i know exactly what you parents are up to yeah. um but yes there can be some slightly comical moments i think um now last couple of questions um you're you are a music lover i know um as am i actually i love music but you you love music so tell us a song if you had to have one on repeat for a long time what's your song you're gonna have um on, if I had to have a, one on repeat for a long time, it would probably be um, possibly, it would either be Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf, because it's Ooh. about nine minutes long, and it's effectively three or four songs mm -hmm. rolled into one, um, so it's got a lot of variety, so I don't think I'd get bored by that too much, or possibly Telegraph Road, Dire Straits, I think that's 14 minutes long. Mm. So, um, I mean, I have a very, well, most people say a rubbish music taste. I, 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 I have a very wide ranging musical taste, 
but I do like a lot of what most people would describe as absolute rubbish. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I, I like, I mean, my, my, the bands that I listen to most would be, or singers, um, Sparks, Meatloaf, Roxette, ABBA, Cliff Richard, mm-hmm. Dire Straits. Um, but I, I love finding new singers that people have never heard of. Um, Alastair Griffin, I listen to a lot. He was on Fame Academy back in like 2003 or something. And he's actually become quite a good friend. Um, and he he's just a, a solo singer songwriter. And I've been to a lot of his concerts. So I've got about, I don't know, 120 songs. by. I've got four, 42,000 songs on my phone. Wow. And I love just putting them on shuffle and not knowing what's going to come up next. Um, I've got about 19, in fact, when I interviewed Cliff Richard about six months ago and was able to show him on my phone that I have 1,914 Cliff Richard songs on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) So you're single-handedly responsible for a chunk of his wealth in that case. Well, quite exactly. Um, And I've been to about, I don't know, about a dozen of his concerts as well. And I just, and it was such... I don't get sort of gooey eyed about many people when I interview them. And I have interviewed quite a lot of really sort of A grade celebrities. Um, but I I was quite nervous about interviewing him because I thought, oh, if this goes wrong, it's just going to be awful. But it was a really, really good interview. And um, I, I remember interviewing Joan Collins being completely intimidated by her. Mm-hmm. But you just learn with people like her and Joan Rivers was another one where you just have to play the role. And with Joan Collins, you're a man. So you you sort of flirt a bit. With Joan Collins, you just feed her lines that she can then be funny over. Um, and it's, um, I mean, when I, when I eventually finished doing this sort of mad job, I think I would look back on all of those moments and think, well, there aren't many people to get, who get to meet people that they've grown up with and but they can be disappointing I don't know if you've ever, ever read any of James Herbert's books he, he wrote uh, horror, horror books one or two yeah when I was a lot like younger the rats domain and lair and things like that well I got most of my sex education from those books and then I, <laughs> I got the chance to interview him about seven or eight years ago and I was really excited and then in walked this little old man and it was an hour of purgatory <laughs> and it was it was just and I just thought he's not well uh, and a, a year later he was dead um and that that was awful because it kind of shattered all my illusions about him in a way because mm. I suppose I'd seen pictures of him on the book covers when I was like 14 or 15 or something and he wasn't anything like that at all well we're, we're ending on on a point of wisdom from you just there um which which tees up my very final question perfectly which is um, your advice to an 18 year old Ian Dale, you're at the top of your field now. It's been an amazing journey so far, Ian, more to go. But looking back to 18 year old Ian, what advice are you going to give yourself? Well, I actually wrote a letter to my 16 year old self about 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. I think the what I said in that, and I'd have to go back, it's on my website somewhere, um, is just be yourself, be who you are. Don't feel you need to follow the crowd. Um I suppose my one bit of advice would have been to be honest about my sexuality a lot earlier than I was. Mm. Um, But it's all very well saying that now. I grew up in a very different time. I didn't Mm. want to hurt my parents. Um, And I think that's probably, yeah, I wish wish I'd done that when I was, and I could have done when I was in my 
late teens early 20s but chose not to and I think that I don't really have many regrets in my life but that would certainly be one well that's really brilliant advice to end on be yourself totally right totally at the heart of how you be your best I think I don't think you can be your best if you're not yourself so completely agree Ian it's just been such a pleasure having you on the podcast thanks for answering my many curveball questions you're only meant to have one in an interview I I realize I sprayed them at you constantly I feel as if I've been on your proverbial couch (laughs) (laughs) well I'm very appreciative that you you did it and yeah many many thanks in and and thanks for doing the podcast no not at all I'm looking forward to returning the compliment in a couple of weeks (laughs) I'm dreading it now thank you (laughs) 